that. My name is Greg Boyd. I'm the senior pastor here at Woodland Hills Church. Was gone last week because, as I said, I was down uh, enjoying a little vacation with my lovely wife in Mexico. I appreciate Seth uh, filling in and continuing on the faith series. I thought it was going to come to an end, but he felt led to preach a little bit on faith and how it's not so much a, just a belief system, but a lifestyle. Amen. And so I figured since he wanted to do one more on faith, well, I got one more to do on faith. So for sure we're going to wrap it up today. We have to because we're starting the craft series next week. Uh, so this is the last of this series, this odd series, this impromptu, unscheduled series that we've been on. It has to deal with faith. It has to deal with doubt and the legitimacy of wrestling with God. It has been for some a paradigm uh, uh, change. Um, it's, it's, uh, for some it's, it's messed up some things that needed to be messed up, unsettled some things that seemed to be settled but needed to be unsettled. Uh, and giving people a new kind of frame of reference on, on how to do faith. So I want to kind of end this series the way we began it. We began way back in the first uh, weekend in January, you may recall, by talking about Jacob. Jacob wrestled with God. And that's why he was renamed Israel and why the Israelites were called the Israelites because it has the connotation of those who strive with God. And the whole point of that is to say that that faith is not the opposite, the antithesis of doubt. Faith can include doubt. In fact, authentic faith always includes doubt and, and, and includes wrestling uh, with, with, with God and wrestling with questions and not having all the answers. Uh, many of us have or are in the process of outgrowing that form of Christianity where everything's got to be nice and tidy and neat and all thrown together and we've got to be the people who have all the answers and, and none of the questions. And part of the series is meant to upset that model of Christianity. Because it never was authentic, and now in this culture, in this time, it, it, it just doesn't uh, wear well for, for most thinking people. So I want to return to this wrestling with God, and I want to do it by talking about the story of Abraham. I want to entitle this message, Trusting the Killer God? Question mark. Because this is a story of God telling Abraham to offer up his firstborn son. Now, I want to give a warning here. Uh, the first half of this message will be mostly questions. Because I, I want to model, I want to illustrate the okayness of wrestling with the text. And very often, the most profound aspects of a text come only when you give yourself permission to ask honest questions of the text. Uh, to, not, to not be okay with, with sort of pat answers that people have given about the text. So the first half of this is going to ask some questions. And I'm not going to answer them all because I don't have the answers to them all. And so if you're new here to Woodland Hills Church, you're, you're probably not used to a pastor doing that. And it may upset you a little bit. Uh, if, you're, if you've been here for a while, you're getting used to this by now, and you've hung around, and I applaud you for that. Uh, but stick in there, because the last half of the message will have some life application. We won't send you out, uh, send out of the door with uh, just your head spinning. Uh, there'll be some stuff you can uh, apply to your life as well. But see, people sometimes have, if you come from a traditional background, the idea, uh, the stereotype that a pastor is here to not ask questions, but just to give the answers. Um, my job is to calm people down, not stir them up. Uh, it's to reinforce uh, traditional views, not question traditional views. And that is simply not our model. Um, I, I, the first job of a teacher, I believe, is to be as ruthlessly honest in public as possible. To just be honest. Amen. And, and let, let the text disturb you and then share your disturbance with others. <laughs> and when you've got some answers, you share the answers. I do that when I have them. But other times it's just a matter of saying, what's up with this? So let's look at this very challenging text and say, what's up with this? And uh, trust that God will use the process of wrestling with the text 
to grow us individually and as a community. Let me start with prayer. Father, I thank you for every aspect of your word. Some parts are so comforting and some parts are so disturbing. But God, it's all your word and we submit ourselves to it. And we just ask God that you use it and blow the wind of your spirit in and through it. And Lord, form us as a body, as a people who are singularly devoted to Jesus Christ and who stand strong on stuff that is solid, but who also are very free and light on stuff that maybe isn't solid. And who have the humility to know that we don't know. Grow us. Grow us through this message. And for everybody listening through podcasts and television and every other means, same thing. Open our hearts and ears. In Jesus' name we pray and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Genesis 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, Abraham said, here am I. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love. It's almost like driving it home. That one that you love, the only one you got. And go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. Wow. This is the son that God had promised Abraham. He'd waited quite some time. And this is the son that was supernaturally given to him while he was in an old age and Sarah was in an old age. This was the son uh, through whom God promised Abraham would have a family and through whom all the nations of the world would be blessed. And now God is saying, yeah, I promised all that and I delivered, but now I want you to kill him. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set off for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance, and he said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey, while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son, and he, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his uh, father, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Just wondering. <laughs> Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went up, uh, uh, went on together. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar uh, on, on top of the wood, at which point Isaac no doubt began to sweat. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here am I. He replied, do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him because now I know, now I know that you fear God because you've not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. Quite a story. There's a lot of questions that this, this uh, uh, passage raises and a lot of, uh, at least several very important points that it teaches us. We're going to deal with both. But before I ask the questions, it's, I, I want to remind us about the framework for asking questions, at least the framework that I recommend uh, as we've been going through the series on doubt. A lot of people have, we said several weeks ago, a house of cards theology where everything depends on everything else and everything is equally important. So if you knock out one piece of the theology, the whole thing comes crumbling to the, to the ground. If there's one passage in the Bible that can be proven to be wrong, boom, all of a sudden you, you lose uh, all your faith. Instead of that model of the faith, which is one that I had and many of us have had at different points and one that for me came crashing down 
a number of years ago. Instead of that, I recommend having a concentric circle model of faith where Jesus is at the center and he's the only center. And then outside of that is scripture, and then outside of that is doctrine, important doctrine, then outside of that is, is our theological opinions. In this model, everything hangs on Jesus. Now, here's the thing. I, I, I believe in scripture as the inspired word of God because I believe in Jesus. But I, it's not that I believe in Jesus because I believe in scripture as the inspired word of God. I believe in Jesus for a lot of reasons, historical reasons, philosophical reasons, existential reasons, and I, I've shared those in books like The Jesus Legend and Letters from a Skeptic, and I encourage you to know why you believe in Jesus as, as, as the revelation of God, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. All my eggs are in that basket. That is, to me, the center of the center. Yeah. Everything hangs on the person of Jesus Christ. I can't prove that with, with certainty, but I've got more reasons for believing that that is true than any other viable uh, philosophy. So I'm putting all my eggs in that basket. Now, I believe in Scripture because Scripture comes with Him. Uh, you can't understand the identity of Jesus unless you understand the story that He's a part of. And Jesus Himself endorses Scripture as, as the Word of God. But notice that Scripture is secondary in the sense that I don't leverage everything about my faith on Scripture. I leverage it all on the person of Jesus Christ. It's a little bit, and here's an analogy I used several weeks ago. When I married Shelley, I married into her family history, her family story. I need to know her family history and her family story to understand her. But I don't marry her family story, I marry her. So my, our relationship isn't determined by the details of what I find in her history. No, I want to know that in order to love her better. But, but uh, it doesn't hang upon the details of that, that history. So also, when we sign up to be disciples of Jesus, we are marrying Jesus Christ. And to understand who Jesus is and to help us relate to him, we have the Holy Scripture. But we don't marry the Holy Scripture. We marry Jesus. And the Scripture is there to help us in that relationship. But that's why the center of the Christian faith is not a book. If that's your model, well then it's, it's, it, you'll be living in a house of cards theology because all it will take is one verse or one thing to get knocked off and down and the whole thing comes tumbling to the ground. No, no, the center of our faith is a person. It's the person of Jesus Christ. And that's why our faith should not hang on every detail about Scripture. It used to for me when I was a new Christian, Man, one contradiction, one discrepancy used to bother me profoundly. I had to prove every single aspect of it. But see, uh, now I, I see that as the background story that helps me know Jesus. But, but I, I don't get upset if there's an archaeological discrepancy or uh, uh, some of the numbers don't line up or you're not sure whether to take this passage as figurative or that passage as, as literal or, or if you can't verify this, this one part as being scientifically or historically accurate. So What? So what? It doesn't change the truth that I know who God is through Jesus Christ, and I know what he thinks about me through Jesus Christ, and I know what he thinks about you through Jesus Christ, and I know how I'm supposed to live because of Jesus Christ. And all of this is simply the prop that, that helps me understand that. And see, when you have that mindset, here, here, here's the important point of this. It frees you to, to, it frees you to be honest, yeah. which is so important. To be honest and to ask questions. You're not leveraging, you're not, you're, not, you're not selling the farm on every, every particular verse. No, it, it gives you freedom to ask honest questions and to wrestle with stuff and, uh, and to be okay with that. So now I'm going to wrestle with this passage. And you don't have to agree with me, by the way. 
Uh, that's another little paradigm of Christianity we need uh, to, to get rid of, that we're all supposed to have the same think. No, no, we, we look at this in different ways. I'm just going to share kind of the issues that arise when I look at this text. Here's a few questions. How am I to understand God making this request, or even this command of Abraham? Kill your son. How, how do we get our brains around that? He's saying, if you love me, Abraham, kill your son. That one that I gave you. The one that I, I promised you. The one that I promised you a family through. I want you now to kill him. To prove that you're loyal to me. At best, at best, that seems incredibly cruel. It's almost like Sophie's Choice. Have you ever, ever seen that movie? Where the mother has to choose between which of her beloved children she's going to send to the death camp. At best, it seems unthinkably cruel. At worst, it's murder. Isaac is innocent, innocent human being. To kill an innocent human being is, is murder, and, and murder is sin. I'm just being honest here. Now, God can't sin, right? The Bible says that all over the place. He can't sin. Not that he has the power to, but he has a character not to. So if he can't sin, how can he command sin? I, I wonder if, I'm just thinking out loud here, uh, but, see, I think sometimes we are so used to associating God with violence because we do it throughout history that we no longer even think of killing a sin, at least not when God's involved. So maybe if we change the reference, it would help us feel the jarringness of this passage because I think we're supposed to be jarred by this. What would you think of the passage instead of having Abraham kill his son, said, Abraham, I want you to rape your son. Uh, I, I want you to cheat on your wife or something of that sort. Would that bother you? I hope it would bother you. It would bother me. Well, killing is just as bad. Yeah. And so it's, it's, it's a troublesome passage. Now, people have a number of replies to this. None of them are that good, I don't think. My favorite uh, is from Kierkegaard's Fear and Trembling. Kierkegaard's one of my favorite authors, and he has what he calls the theological suspension of the ethical. I, and I remember as a sophomore going around saying that because I thought it sounded so smart. I wasn't sure what it meant, but the teleological suspension of the ethical, which really just basically means that God gets to break his own, reals, his own uh, ethical rules if there's a good enough reason for it. And so if God commands you to kill, it's no longer murder. And there's some merit to this, and we could talk about it, but it's also got some problems. I mean, does that mean that God just arbitrarily decides what is good and what is evil? If, if that might decides what is right, there's some really interesting questions that go with that. There's other explanations that I don't find particularly satisfying. Some scholars suggest, just throwing this out here, that this whole story is a, it's, it's an inspired story designed to communicate something to people at a very primitive stage of revelation where they're just beginning to discover that the true God does not approve of child sacrifices. Because in the ancient world, almost everybody did that. They sacrificed their firstborn child. That was the way you placated the gods. That's the way you got security. You offered them your firstborn, you fed them, and, and then you, you felt you know, safe. The gods have been appeased. And it took a while for the Israelites to learn that. In fact, that's why you find throughout the Old Testament a number of commands against causing your children to pass through the fire. That, that's what the phrase was used. Uh, they, they had to constantly forbid that because the Israelites were always tempted to do that. And so this story is a way, some scholars suggest, of of communicating that while God appreciates, and this is hard for us to enter into because we're such a different culture, but in, its, in original context, God appreciates the heart behind child sacrifice, but doesn't uh, approve of child sacrifice. The heart that offers up everything. God appreciates that, but doesn't want you to be killing your firstborn child to do it. In any case, um, however you interpret the story, the depiction of God as testing Abraham in this way is, frankly, troubling. Here's another question. 
that is at least is troubling. How would Abraham have been certain that this was God who told him this? I mean, think about that. If an angel appears to me and says, Greg, God wants you to kill your son. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> no, I, 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 and I don't care how big that angel is, how pretty the angel is. I, I don't care if the angel says I'm God himself, I, you know, a giant head wizard of Oz, I, I, holding a thunderbolt ready to strike me. If, if, so, if an apparition shows up, I don't care how impressive it is, and says, I want you to kill your son or kill anybody, I will assume that I'm going nuts or someone slipped a drug in my drink, or this is the devil. But I'm not going to act on that. I know God better than to know that he would ever do this. And I think Paul would agree with me. The Apostle Paul says this in, in Galatians 1. Even if we or an angel from heaven, or an angel that looks like it's from heaven, should preach a gospel, proclaim something other than what we have preached to you, let that person or let that angel be under God's curse. Consider it to be demonic, Paul is saying. Doesn't matter if it's supernatural. Doesn't matter if it can do miracles. No, the enemy can do that. Uh, you know, no, just lock in what you know and don't let any angel from heaven or any other apparition or any other voice or anything else uh, contradict it. Now, here's the thing, a central part of the gospel. And I, at the center of the gospel that we receive as disciples of Jesus is the knowledge that God hates violence. If we learn anything about God and Jesus Christ, it's that he would rather suffer violence than engage in violence. That's why Jesus says, don't just love those who love you, but love even those who don't love you and treat them well and never, and never resort to violence, and never use a sword, and never exact vengeance, and never return evil with good, and feed your enemies when they're hungry, and on, and on, and on, and on. Yeah. So if an angel of God shows up in a giant head and maybe a thunderbolt in the hand or something like that and says, kill your son, I'm going to go, no, because I know who God is in Jesus, and therefore you're not of God. Paul tells me to regard you as a curse. Get out of here. So that raises the question of how, how could Abraham have known? Now, he doesn't have the full revelation that we have. But how would Abraham have been certain that God was telling him to do this? See, this is an important point because what it means is this. Whatever we take out of this passage, it should never be used. Or any passage like it should never be used to trump what we know about God and Jesus Christ. And that's so important because we live in a world, as most of us have noticed, noticed, where an increasing number of people feel it's okay to kill in God's name. God told me to kill, Allah Akbar. God told me to go into McDonald's and shoot up everybody, just like he told Abraham to kill. And, and whatever else we make of this text, it cannot be used to set a precedent of religious violence. No, all that is negated in the person of, of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So the passage doesn't answer my question about why Abraham believed God told him to kill Isaac. Even if he was right in thinking that God told him to kill Isaac. And you can't force the text to answer questions it's not designed to answer. And that's okay. Because our faith doesn't hang upon the particular interpretation of any particular passage. At the same time, at the same time, this is part of the story that comes along with Jesus Christ. And Jesus endorses this. The New Testament endorses this as the inspired word of God. So we've got to deal with it. We've got to ask, what then does this text teach us? And I want to submit to you two things, both of them having to do with faith. Two things. Number one, what I find most profound about this passage is that Abraham trusted God's character even when he believed he got a revelation that was out of character. He, he had, whether it was an apparition, however he saw this angel, however it appeared to him, he was convinced that God wanted him to do this. But he was also convinced that God wouldn't make him do this. Read the, read the text carefully. Look at uh, verse 5. He says this to his servants. 
Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. He's assuming that Isaac is going to come back with him. Why? Because he assumes that God will not break his promise. God made him a promise. And he's walked with God for, for a number of years. He knows that God is not like Moloch or Chemish or these other child-devouring gods. Even though God's looking like that right now, but he's trusting that God really is not that way. God will be faithful. And somehow, some way, he's coming back from that mountain with Isaac. He's believing that. But he still moves forward. Uh, he doesn't know how this is all going to pan out, but he's trusting God's character. Then in verse 8, it says, Abraham answered God. When, when, when Isaac asked the question, where's the sacrifice? Abraham says, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. I believe, I used to think Abraham was kind of telling a white lie there. Uh, just he didn't want to panic. And say, I think he was telling the truth. He believed that God was going to uh, come through on this. And so here's Abraham. I, I, I just love this. This is a man of faith who, he knows God's character. And he's not going to reject what he knows about God's character because some angel told him otherwise. And yet... He feels he has to move forward in this bizarre, cruel way because of this vision he received. So it's almost like you could say Abraham has to trust the character of God against what he believes is the revelation of God. That's between a rock and a hard place. And see, I, I, I so relate to this. I, I so relate to this. As I say over and over and over again, because I think it's the most foundational aspect of, of, of the faith. I believe, at the center of everything that I'm about, I believe that God looks like Jesus Christ. John 14, 9, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't look anywhere else, anywhere else, to know what God the Father looks like. In Jesus dying on the cross, we find the character of God, the perfect expression of God. Now here's the thing, I know that. Like Abraham knew God's character, and he's not like Moloch. At the same time, you know, the Bible paints, on the whole, a magnificent, beautiful picture of God. And I've re I, I, I feel compelled to embrace this story because I embrace Jesus and, and, and he, the story comes with him. But at the same time, and here's why this matters to me so much personally, I, I find pictures of God in, in, in the Bible sometimes that don't look at all like Jesus. They don't. And I don't know how to put those things together. Hosea 13 talks about God ripping fetuses out of a woman's womb and dashing them on the ground. That doesn't sound like Jesus. Show them no mercy. Slaughter men, women, and children. That doesn't sound like Jesus. So on the one hand, this is part of the inspired word of God. So I have to say, what does it teach me? I, I can't just reject it. On the other hand, I, it, it contradicts what I learned about God and Jesus. So I can't simply accept it. Where am I? Well, I'm exactly where Abraham was. Between this rock and a hard place. And so what I will do is what Abraham did. Is I will walk with God the best I know. I will move forward in the direction, going on the best revelation I've got. But at the center of everything, at the center of everything, I have to. And you have to. We have to trust the character of God. Even when it looks, even when it appears in our own text that God is other than the way he's revealed in Jesus Christ, we've got to trust that the final word comes from Jesus Christ. The final revelation comes from Jesus Christ. God is not looking like Moloch. He's not a child killer. He's not a devouring God. He's a God who dies for us on Calvary, a God who prays for our forgiveness on Calvary, a God who's always pursuing us, always loving us, who's already forgiven us, a God who puts his arms around us, a God who will not give up on us, a God who's the shepherd looking for that lost sheep and the woman looking for the lost coin. 
and the father of the prodigal son yeah. running down the street to embrace us. Yeah. The second we turn back to him, that's the true God. That's the yeah. real God. And we trust that. Yeah. That's the center of the faith. Put your trust in that. Embrace that picture of God. And it applies to every area of our life. Every area. Uh, you know, sometimes, for whatever reasons, and usually it's because our head is screwed up. But sometimes it feels like God sort of got it in for you. Does it? Like, 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 like there's a mean streak in God, and he's got your number today or this season. And, and, and our, our heads can get messed up. Even if you've got an accurate theology, sometimes you just, it, it feels like, that, like, like fate is against you. The universe is against you. The gods are against you. And, and, you, and you start thinking that God's the one who's, who's, who's sending the cancer. Or God's the one who blew apart your marriage. Or God's the one who, who, who caused your friends to betray you. Or God's the one who's giving you blindness and so on and so on. And it can begin to seem like God is this monster out there. Sometimes it can feel like that. Sometimes, sometimes life can just suck so bad you think to yourself, this can't possibly be by chance. <laughs> There's a design to this, this macabre affair. How important it is in those moments, even if it really does feel like that to you, to remind yourself that God looks like Jesus Christ. Uh, that, that keep your eyes, as the Bible says over and over again, fixed on Jesus Christ. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus Christ the author and finisher of our faith. Abraham trusted the character of God even when he believed he had a revelation that was out of character. And that's since he's the father of the faithful. The second thing, and I'll just say this real briefly, is, is this. Uh, while the, 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 the questions the text raises, it doesn't answer the question about the morality of this, but what it does tell us, if we just put our own questions on, on hiatus, put them on the back burner, what we see in Abraham is this. Uh, a, a man who was willing to offer up everything to God. A man who really did have a heart that God affirms. God does not approve of child sacrifice. But God does approve of the heart that says, it all belongs to you. I offer it up to you. And this is in fact what the Christian faith requires. To be a disciple of Jesus means we release everything, including our Isaacs, up to God. We live life with open palms. That's why Jesus says in, in, in Luke 14 that if we're going to be his disciples, we can't have any possessions. doesn't mean we can't legally own anything, but we're not allowed to cling to anything. We can enjoy stuff that he gives us to enjoy, but we're not allowed to cling to anything. I, I've always preached this so, as long as I can remember, but the older I get, the more I experience how true it is, and that is this. It seems to me that life is a process. In, in this fallen world, it's a process that God uses to teach us how to let go of everything because life does eventually take everything away from you. Life is a process of having everything stripped from you. Have you noticed that? If you're over 40, you maybe have begun to notice this. It's a process. Um, it, sometimes it happens quickly and sometimes it happens slowly, but every single thing gets ripped away, little by little. And it can drive you crazy if you're trying to cling to stuff. No, oh, there it goes. No, you fight it, but slowly it, it gets ripped away from you. I, uh, this is a rather trivial example, but, but, but it works. It's where I'm at right now. This last week, I, I think I've shared this in the pulpit but, uh, before, but I, uh, several months ago I, had this, I was in this car accident. I've had this jacked up neck ever since. Just no mobility has been painful. So I've been you know, going to physical therapists and blah, 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 blah. So I finally got an MRI done because it's not getting better. And uh, the MRI, we were hoping to find a pinched nerve or a slipped disc or something that could be fixed. Unfortunately, what they found was, was a, uh, a uh, severe degeneration. 
uh, and arthritis, which means that this was here before the accident. The accident just sort of aggravated it and you know, inflamed other things to bring out the pain of it. But uh, here, so I got this, this, this skeletal degeneration that you can't reverse. It's basically they're saying this is how it's going to be. Now, th- in terms of, of, of world problems, this doesn't rate very high because I know a lot of people who can't move their neck at all. I know a lot of people who can't move their arms or legs. They're paralyzed. In fact, 40% of the population on the planet hasn't even lived to my age. I got nothing to cry about. I'm a blessed man. But still, this is very irritating. <laughs> this is irritating. I, and, and the weird thing is I've always been the kind of person who, who uh, believed naively that, that any kind of physical problem I can work through. I, I, I'll just work out more, I'll sweat more, I'll eat right, I'll, and, and I can work through any problem. This ain't that kind of thing. There's some injections, fun injections you can get that I've gotten to get a little bit of lubrication in there, you know, and, 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 and things like that. And I'm, you know, getting prayer for it all the time, so, you know, that's good, keep me covered. I'm, I'm holding out hope for, for, for healing, and I'm doing the things that you're supposed to do to make it as good as possible, looking at all the options, but it's still irritating. But see, that's one example of one little thing that just gets taken away from you. You know, you, you think you have a right to a, mo- a neck that moves in every direction? <laughs> no, that's a privilege. <laughs> and it's not necessarily a permanent one. But that's how life is. It gets taken from you. I don't think that God brought that on me. I don't think God brings skeletal or muscular degeneration here. It's the result of living in a, in a corrupt world, a world that's under the death force. Uh, this is not the ideal creation that, that, that God wanted, and this is just one of the things that happened with it. But I do believe God is involved in all of it to bring good out of it, to teach us, to refine us, to build character, to build patience, to become, make us more dependent on Him. I've learned that now just to accept the permanence of this, if this is what I have to do, requires me to become more dependent on Him. It's a little bit more work to stay in a good mood when you've got a constant irritating thing. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You live in that kind of pain. But see, that's good for the soul. God uses that to build us and refine us. And life is a process of things being stripped away from us. And in the end, you know, see where I'm going with this here. In the end, we stand naked before God with everything stripped from us. That's, and there, there will be nothing but pure, undiluted truth in the presence of God's love. And as we stand naked with all defenses stripped away, We'll see how much we've learned to do that through this life and now how much has to be done through, through the, the fire of God's love. And we'll stand before God in that moment. And for some, I believe the moment will be two seconds. For, for others, I think the moment might feel like 10,000 years. But we'll be naked in the presence of God and nothing but truth will be there. And everything that's purifiable will be purified by the perfect love of God. And everything that's not will be consumed by the fire of God's perfect love. That's how I view the, 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 the judgment. But see, if Jesus tells us anything, if the New Testament tells us anything, it is this. It is in our best interest. Yes, life's going to take this away, take everything away from us. And then whatever remains will be stripped at death and in the final judgment. But it is in our best interest to let it go ahead of time. To let it go now. To learn how not to hold to it in the first place. Because that's what it means to submit to Him as Lord. To have nothing else that we cling to for security and for worth. To surrender now, surrender our best to God in order to be purified. Surrender our worst to God in order to be consumed, which means surrendering all of our thoughts, all of our emotions, all of our physicality, all of our sexuality, all of our wealth, all of our talents, all of our relationships, all of our Isaacs up to him. Offer them up. And to believe that God is a good God. Yes. And, and he's not going to leave us empty-handed. Whatever is good will be returned to us. He himself tells us this a hundredfold. Whatever is bad will be 
consumed by his gracious love, by his gracious fire, and will be freed from it. So when the way Jesus said it is, die that you might live. Let it go and find life. Offer up your Isaacs. So I want to end with this little uh, kind of uh, experience, experiment, uh, exercise. Close your eyes for a moment, if you will. It really comes down to this. Do you trust God enough to let everything go? That requires incredible trust. And, and so I want to ask the question, Holy Spirit, help us to be honest. Are we hanging on to an Isaac? And the Isaac could be a beautiful thing like a relationship, but you're getting life and worth from it. Are you clinging to it? Or the Isaac could be a real nasty thing, like your porn addiction or something like that. But it feeds you and you're clinging to that. Holy Spirit, reveal to us what we are clinging to. And right now, just what pops into your mind? And whatever pops into your mind, right now consider that that is an Isaac that God wants you to let go. If it's good, he doesn't want you to kill it. He just wants you to let it go and offer it up. Irony is that you'll enjoy it much more when you're not clinging to it. And then maybe we just with your palms, if this works for you, you just open up your palms and say, Lord, I offer it to you. My precious relationship with my children, I offer it to you. Trust him. My sin, I offer it to you. Offer it up. Open your hands. Put it up on the altar. Whatever's good, you'll get back. Whatever's not, you'll be freed from. Father, help us to live like this. Help us to have the faith of Abraham. midst of so many questions and so many things we don't understand, Lord, help us to be a people who humbly offer up everything to you moment by moment. Take it, Lord. Take it, Lord. Life will take it from us eventually. We offer it ahead of time. We do it with grace. Take the sin. Take the idolatry. Take what is beautiful. Take what is ugly. We're offered up to you. Thank you, God, for being a God who's beautiful, who looks like Jesus, a God we can trust. We do trust you with everything. I'd like to call the altar workers up here, and if you are here this morning and have any, any need you'd like to have prayed for, maybe it's a chronically painful neck, maybe it's something else, chronically painful relationship, I encourage you to come up and, and pray with these folks, spend some time with these folks. Remember the prayer ministry, looking for prayer warriors out at the hub. God bless you guys. Live with open palms. Cling on to nothing. Celebrate everything. In Jesus' name, love you. Bye.